This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting to hold politicians accountable for better health care. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Coming up, the bid to decriminalize illegal drugs. And speaking of the law, one of Canada's top lawyers, Marie Hennon, talks about her new memoir, Nothing But the Truth. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Viagra became a blockbuster drug treating erectile dysfunction. But now a new study finds it could decrease your chances of getting Alzheimer's disease by nearly 70%. Researchers at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio analyzed the insurance records of 7.4 million people in the U.S., and found that patients who took Viagra were 69% less likely to develop Alzheimer's over the next six years compared to those who didn't use the drug. They cautioned this doesn't necessarily establish a causal effect because it's based on observations, but it does provide a bit of hope for more than half a million Canadians currently living with Alzheimer's disease. The study is published in the journal Nature Aging. The number of surgeries performed in Canada fell by more than half a million during the pandemic, according to a new report. The Canadian Institute for Health Information found surgeries decreased by about 35,000 a month during the first year and a half of the pandemic, with the largest declines during the first wave. The biggest decreases were in cataract removals and hip and knee replacements. The agency says it's still not clear how large the backlog is, and it's unlikely the waiting list will see a major decline. Britain's drinking deaths rose at a record rate during the pandemic, up 19% last year, the biggest rise since records began, according to the Office for National Statistics. It bucks a trend in which fatalities from alcohol remained stable for the previous seven years. In England, the number of people drinking more than 14 servings a week increased after the first national lockdown and remained at similar levels since. Eight in ten of the deaths were from alcoholic liver disease, and although cirrhosis can take a decade or more to develop, most were the result of acute liver failure due to recent alcohol intake. A 104-year-old woman in India has just learned to read and write through a government-sponsored literacy program. Kutiyama married young and household chores early on put an end to her dream of an education. She's now made headlines for accomplishment, scoring 89 out of 100 on the official literacy test. Congratulations. Va bene, va bene, 
That's a scene from Swept Away, just one of the films by Italian director Lino Erdmuller, who took on politics and sex, infusing grim scenes with shocking humor. The first woman ever to be nominated for Best Director at the Academy Awards has died at the age of 93. She didn't shy away from subjects like survival in a Nazi concentration camp in the movie Seven Beauties. When the Rome-born Bert Mueller was awarded an honorary Oscar in 2019, she said she'd like to change the name from Oscar to a feminine one. Anna, according to a friend, the writer-director died peacefully at home this week, next to her daughter and loved ones. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. The Toronto Board of Health is asking the federal government to decriminalize the possession of small amounts of illegal drugs in the city. It's just one of the bids to override the law to help tackle the opioid overdose crisis, which has reached record levels. I talked with Dr. Leslie Buckley, chief of the addictions division at CAMH, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. This comes in the context of an increase in opioid overdoses. Tell me a little bit about that. What have we seen locally? Certainly. So, you know, in Ontario, I mean, throughout the country, in Ontario, in Toronto, we've seen um, such drastic increases during COVID. Um, it was, you know, the problem we didn't really think could get any worse, but yet, yet it did. So, you know, in the current context, it makes even more sense to make these changes. Do you have some numbers about the increases in opioid overdoses? Between the beginning of the pandemic, so for that year, I think it was about a 50%, 50 to 60% increase. And uh, who are the people that this is affecting uh, demographically? Uh, is it more older people, younger people? So it's um, one of the outstanding pieces of information that, that we've learned is that um, the opioid deaths predominantly affect men. And um, even more so during the pandemic. So that's uh, an important thing. And then the ages are um, not the very, very young and not the very old, but the people in between. And why is that? Um, I think it takes some time for people to shift through substances to be using opioids. So I think in some ways that's why the young are protected, although we are seeing more and more young people who are, who are coming in with um, addictions to, to fentanyl. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that that stage of life is a difficult time in terms of having, you know, competing demands and stresses in life. How would decriminalizing uh, small amounts, how would it actually help users? When somebody receives a charge for substance use, it's going to have a big impact on them in terms of, you know, making changes in their life if they decide to um reduce their substance use and maybe start to consider working again, the, the charge might interfere with that because of extreme stress, certainly. And it also affects people because they, they, want to, they want to hide when they use. So the fear factor and the stigma factor keep people using alone, which is the last thing that we want to see during this opioid crisis. Give me an idea of how this has worked elsewhere. I know that Portugal is a very interesting example. Yes, so Portugal, you know, is the example that most people point to. And just to give a bit of context to the model, so it's about 20 years old now, so 2001 was initiated. And it actually started out to um, with the purpose of decreasing HIV transmission in people who were using substances. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it um, was a 
you know, a robust strategy. So it wasn't just about decriminalizing. It was, you know, they doubled the amount of treatment. So treatment became more accessible. They doubled um, prevention. They increased harm reduction. So they had, you know, a huge strategy, which is, you know, quite, um, quite robust. And they were able to decriminalize substances without really a, uh, any sign of a dramatic increase in use. And so did it help, though? What's really important in thinking about Portugal is that for various reasons, including time differences, so that was 2001, we're now battling a different substance, uh, fentanyl, that is very different. Um, there's also a different social, cultural context there. So what happened in Portugal may not be exactly transferable to what will happen here. I know that one of the problems is that the drug supply, the illegal drug supply, is tainted. But if this only impacts uh, small amounts for use, how will it stop that? You still are going to have criminals who are selling the stuff. Well, I think what we've learned, you know, across many different countries when it comes to substances is that it's, um, you know, incredibly difficult to police the sale of illegal substances. Even even when something is legalized, there's still, I mean, look at cannabis, there's still, you know, 50% of the market um, is, is illegal. So it's just incredibly hard to police and monitor um, the, uh, the substances that people consume. And for that reason, you know, I think that we can't let go of thinking about primary prevention. And, you know, it's hard it's hard to think about primary prevention in the context of you know, such incredible harm that we see. Um, but I think that, you know, we owe it to young people to make them more aware of the harms. This is coming in the context of a general approach to liberalization. I know that Vancouver is also looking for this type of exemption. The province of British Columbia is going for it. I, I don't know what role our provincial government would have. And federally, the justice minister is looking to get rid of mandatory minimums for this. So how does it all fit together? So you're right. You know, we have seen whether it's alcohol policy, cannabis policy, and now this new decrim policy option, we are seeing, you know, an increase in in liberalization of drug laws. And I think what's even more important than that is what we do uh, in terms of our drug strategy. So I think, you know, what, what's so special about Portugal isn't necessarily just the decrim part. It's everything they did to create this robust treatment system and, you know, escalate their prevention and their harm reduction. I think that's the story here. I think that's what we need to do in addition to decrim. Okay. Dr. Leslie Buckley, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye now. Bye-bye. That was Dr. Leslie Buckley of CAMH. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Weekend Review. Coming up, why it's important for a celebrated lawyer to defend notorious clients. Marie Hennon's new memoir is called Nothing But the Truth. You're listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting against ageism in the workplace and the marketplace. Find out more at carp.ca. 
She's probably the most prominent lawyer in Canada and also the most vilified, defending notorious clients, especially former CBC star Gian Gomeshi, made Marie Hennen a lightning rod and a target for cancel culture. It also inspired her to write a memoir, Nothing But the Truth. My interest was always in criminal law, and my interest was always as a defense lawyer. And it was my natural inclination. You know, prosecutors are extraordinary uh, and incredibly talented. It was just not the role that I saw myself fitting into comfortably. A lot of people think that defense lawyers who defend really terrible people are terrible people themselves. Well, I I defend people who have been charged uh, with a crime, who are presumed innocent, so I don't come to it with a view that I'm defending terrible people at all. But more importantly, uh, I think the, the difficulty for the public is that they don't really understand, and no fault of the public, so they just don't understand exactly what we're doing in court. What does it mean when you're standing beside your client? And it is easy to conflate the lawyer with the crime or with the client, and that is understandable because you are there uh, representing them in a court. But I, I think... I hope, at least, that in reading the book, it gives a bit of a fuller explanation, not only of the role of the criminal lawyer and the judge and the prosecutor, but the overall design of the system and what it is that we're trying to achieve. Now, you may look at that and say, we've done well, or we've not done well, or we need to improve here or there. But I think you always have to come at it with a better understanding of what it is we're doing and what it is we're trying to achieve. And I think when you have that knowledge, You know, as a society, as a member of the public, you can then be in a position to have an informed analysis or criticism of it. So that that certainly was part of my motivation was to explain the system uh, and demystify it a little bit. Obviously, the most high-profile case that you've had is the Gian Gomeshi case, sexual assault. And it erupted with this whole issue of of whether women have to be believed, even though there were clear violations by the witnesses. I mean, what did you make of that while it was unfolding? Stepping back from, from being obviously part of that case is that, you know, it, it caused a, a conversation at a time in society where it was you know, necessary and ripe to have that conversation. You know, Me Too uh, occurs uh, roughly a little bit after, around the same time, and so we're, we're in, in the public context, a public dialogue. There is uh, a moment, and you can't predict whether, you know, this moment would have occurred five years from now, ten years ago. I mean, this is not the first case, uh, sexual assault case that's been tried in the country. They, they happen frequently. Um, nor is it the first high-profile case. But I think there is a constellation of factors, and one of them is where we are in our thinking about this, where we are socially, and when we're ready to have certain conversations. And I guess at that time, uh, we were ready to have a conversation about these cases and how they're tried, what the history has been, what the experience is like. Um, And so that conversation was had. What do you think the impact of political correctness or what what's called cancel culture has had on on the justice system or has it politics should never have an impact on the justice system whether it's uh, political correctness or political incorrectness which would have been you know the the previous history of of the of the justice system uh, you have to keep politics out of it 
Uh, and judges do. Judges don't, uh, they're not on Twitter and they're not there catering to the public. They're applying the law, uh, laws that are enacted by elected officials and laws that have been discussed and, and, and ruminated over for, for years and years and years. And so you don't want politics and, and mob rule of any sort to ever infect the justice system. It really needs to stand apart. It needs to resist uh, populist views, popular views, uh, you know, general majority views, all of that has to stay out. And remember that the criminal justice system really does only one thing. It decides the guilt or innocence of the person before them. I just want to revisit th- that incident with the Toronto District School Board. You were going to talk to some young girls, uh, many from lower income backgrounds, about your book, and you were cancelled. Uh, because someone thought that the fact that you defended Gian Gomeshi made you mm-hmm. inappropriate. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's a, a profoundly uneducated decision by educators. I think it is uh, completely uh, dismissive of our justice system. It's profoundly dismissive of the role that defense lawyers play. Uh, it is profoundly dismissive of the intellect of these young uh, young women who uh, I did have the opportunity to do a book club, not with TDSB students, but students from other areas. And the questions were incredible and insightful and thoughtful and, and just so smart and so impressive and would make you feel proud of these young women. So they underestimate uh, the young women that they teach. Uh, it, it says a lot of negative things uh, about them. They then said it was a misunderstanding. What about that? I, I, I don't, uh, I can't, uh, there's nothing to misunderstand. I understood what was going on. Uh, but, you know, the, the good news is that I, they've reviewed it. Uh, the, the director reached out to me, and uh, hopefully I have an opportunity uh, in the future to, to speak to the young women of, of TDSB, and that hopefully it's a bit of a, a learning experience. <laughs> okay. Well, that's great. It's a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much and a great book. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was lawyer Marie Hannon on her memoir, Nothing But the Truth. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Weekend Review. Coming up, birthday celebrations for one of the most famous and beloved entertainers of the 20th century. You're listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review. Brought to you by CARP, fighting for financial security for our seniors. Find out more at carp.ca. This weekend marks the 105th anniversary of the birth of one of the most famous entertainers of the 20th century. A man of many names, Old Blue Eyes, the chairman of the board, the Sultan of Swoon, the one and only Frank Sinatra. Born December 12, 1915, and although it's been more than 20 years since he passed away, his legacy remains stronger than ever. The iconic head of the 1960s Rat Pack, Sinatra, could belt out a tune and croon better than just about anyone in the business. He was a star of the silver screen, and the two careers often overlapped, like his starring role in the 1957 film, The Joker is Wild, which featured the soundtrack all the way, one of Sinatra's signature tunes. Right now, we'll hear a different recording from Sinatra from his 1957 holiday album, A Jolly Christmas with Frank Sinatra. Here's old Blue Eyes singing, 
I'll be home for Christmas. I'll be home for Christmas. You can plan on me. Please have snow. Sinatra with I'll Be Home for Christmas. This weekend marks the 105th anniversary of his birth. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Weekend Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Weekend Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.